So I read this week that 54% of people would rather spend time with their pet than anyone else on the planet. So here's a few of those. And it's because your pet doesn't argue with you. <laughs> your pet doesn't let you down. Your pets show you full affection. They show you adoration. <laughs> How many of you feel this way about your pet? You'd be like, yeah, that's me. I could send an embarrassing photo. All right. There's a couple more here. That <laughs> like a little bit like. So I never grew up with a pet, um, but I think I finally can understand how those of you that raised your hand and these people feel because I have a toddler, <laughs> all right? Pets, I think, are, are kind of like toddlers. Um, I have a four-year-old. Last week, it was just a particularly hard week in general. I had said a few things that I regretted and I felt like I disappointed some people I really loved and I was just kind of frustrated and down and out. And so I took Cecily, my four-year-old, to get a Frosty at Wendy's. There's nothing ice cream can't fix, right? And we sat across from each other, and we just ate our ice cream. And she was eating her ice cream, and she wasn't offended. I didn't have a lot to say, and she wasn't expecting some big theological explanation of something. And she didn't even really care that I was a little bit grumpy, to tell you the truth. And I just thought to myself in that moment, you are my favorite person to spend time with, right here, in all the world, because I could just be real. I could just let my guard down and sit there and just be real. And I think um, I would bet that maybe you have had a similar experience, that, that you just feel like you can't be real with someone, that maybe at your worst, uh, the feelings will be rejected, or maybe at best, nobody will even really care how you feel. And so you, you kind of pull away, and you, and you pull back, and you let the guard up, and, and you kind of give, give up on the world, and you resort to pets and toddlers. I will say this. People give us every reason in the world to do this. We are difficult. We, we are moody to each other. We buy into stereotypes and we arrive at preconceived notions that are unfair and, and straight up hurtful. We ignore conflict. We're selfish. We give up on each other far too easily. But here's the truth. Even though people prefer pets or toddlers some days, we couldn't exist in just that world forever. You would get weird and you would take pictures like we just saw. <laughs> because we are designed to need each other. Not just to prefer to have relationships, or, or some people are more social than others, and that's true, but we need each other. That was God's design. Because deep inside of who we are, there is something that connects with other human beings. In Psalm 42, the scripture says that deep calls to deep. Have you heard that before? Deep calls to deep. That means that the very depth and core of who we are is only connected within the depths of other people. In the 1940s, they did this study on babies and orphanages, and they would give them proper nutrition and sterile surroundings, and everything was perfect by the book, but the orphans were still dying, and they, they couldn't figure out why. And after years of research, they concluded that those babies died because they weren't touched, that, that literally no human can survive because no one connected with them. So they kept researching this, and they found that adults who have been touch-deprived struggle with anger, depression, anxiety, and the inability to maintain healthy relationships. A psychologist even found that the U.S. is one of the most violent societies on all the earth, largely because it is a society that is low on affectionate touch. So just give someone a little pat on the back next to you. All right, let's reduce the violence here. 
Uh, we will never, ever know. We will never, ever know the depths of Christ on our own. No matter how intelligent or gifted or spiritual we are, it takes, like Pastor said when he prayed, a functioning body to know him fully and to display his fullness. And that was God's idea. The evidence of Easter that we've been talking about these past few weeks, the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is found in the community of faith, a community that is kind and humble and gentle and patient. It's as if each of us are just a piece of a map that leads us to knowing the fullness of Jesus. The only way for us to know that fullness is to put the map together. It's to pool our understanding, to pool our resources. If we each had a piece of the map to tape it together, that's how we'll understand the depth of the love of Christ. In fact, Ephesians 3.18 says this, you may have uh, power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. We often focus on the end of that verse, but do you see it? Together, together with all the Lord's people, that is the only way we can grasp it. Together. You wonder why Pastor hounds you so constantly to be here Sunday morning and at your small group. He likes you, okay? He likes you all. But what we know is me and you and each of us, we need each other. That life change comes in community and that the evidence of the resurrection lives within the community of faith. I need you. My daughters need you because you understand a certain aspect of who God is that no one else can teach me. That's how God designed it. And with your part of the map and my part of the map and the person next to you part of the map, we can begin to understand the fullness and the richness of who God is, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To some of you, God has been the God of all comfort because you've lost someone you loved. Or, or you've suffered a relationship that was broken and really horrible. To some of you, God is ruler because he has clearly shown you his discipline and his power. To some of you, he is God of the wilderness. He is God when it's dark and hard and frustrating. And to some of you, he is God who keeps green pastures because he's provided for you and healed you and protected you and watched closely over you. And you know that. We need each other to see the evidence of our resurrected king. So when Christ was born, he was rejected in Bethlehem. In fact, the entire to- t- town closed its doors. And he was born in a stable amidst stain and stench and cow poop. When he was two, the government hunted him and killed him and killed every other little boy just in case. That was two. And when he began his ministry at age 30, he was rejected by his own people, the Jewish people. And he tried to get into Samaria, but that city rejected him. And Nazareth also rejected him. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 9, 58, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He created the entire universe, but was rejected and unwelcomed and not received by any part of it, except for one exception. There is this tiny little obscure village about two miles away from Jerusalem called Bethany. And in Bethany, it was the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Simon, Jesus' Jesus's friends, Jesus' amigos. And this was home. 
Not because he was born there. He wasn't born there. He didn't live there. Not because he had crowds of people there who wanted to see him or he did miracles there. But home because there was his community. There were the people there who loved him and accepted him. And in the six days before the crucifixion, Jesus went to the city of Jerusalem every day, but he always went to Bethany to spend the night. It's as if he was saying, okay, I'm going to go do my work. I'm going to go do, God, what you call me to do. But I got to go home at the end of the day. In Bethany, he found refuge and rest and peace and love. He found friends who were clothed in kindness and humbleness and gentleness and patience, like Colossians 3.12 instructs us to be. So what made this city home? What, what characteristics does community need to look, look like for it to be home? And, and how can our community of faith, how can each of us, whether you're here for the first time or since 1970-something, how, how can we become a community of faith like Bethany? Well, I believe this. I believe Bethany was a place of gentle reception. Bethany was a place of gentle reception. Luke 10.38 says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. That village was Bethany. When everyone else was rejecting Jesus, Martha opens her home to him. Martha was a widow, probably the housekeeper for this place that Jesus stayed, and she kindly and gently and graciously received Jesus without any questions. Now, I always kind of imagine this a certain way, but when I started to think about it, don't forget that Jesus wasn't traveling alone. With him came 12 rowdy, stinky teenagers, right, who were his disciples that were traveling with him everywhere. Can you imagine the smell of her house after all those guys were in there? Can you imagine how much food she'd have to prepare for every single meal? It wasn't just me and Jesus hanging out. It was all of these followers that he had with him. It was expensive to host all these people, but Martha didn't regard the cost. It was probably dangerous at that time to entertain Jesus near Jerusalem, but Martha didn't care. She didn't care about the hazard. There were many that rejected him and wouldn't entertain him, but Martha laid out a gentle reception. Receiving Christ means receiving all who belong to him and receiving them with gentle reception. To utterly welcome people who are hard to love. To treat with gentleness those who have been rejected by everyone else. Those who, disagree, who, those who we disagree with their lifestyle and their choices. No matter how offended you are at them, or how frustrated, or how sinful they appear, they are welcome. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. As followers of Christ, we are notorious for spending time arguing over things that don't matter. Yes? Okay. It's like our specialty. We're so good at it. We can fight over nothing for decades and decades. We can judge people. We can reject them so easily. We can give the reason for the hope that we have, but we do it defensively and without regard for other people, and often on social media in all capital letters, right? <laughs> Telling the whole world what issues we stand on, pretending, well, this is what Jesus would do. I'm being bold about my faith. I'm going to write out how everyone else is wrong except for me, and these are the things that are important. And sometimes we do this as a martyr. Well, I'm going to get, a, you know, I'm going to offend people. 
So, you know, I'm just standing up for Jesus. Yes, Jesus offended people. Without a doubt, Jesus offended people. But he did not offend people because he was rude and selfish with a political agenda. He did not. He was gentle and he was respectful, like the scripture says in 1 Peter. And his message received people, then convicted and changed them. There's this new movie out called Argo. And uh, in the film, if you've seen it, the American embassy in Iran is invaded and, and several Americans are taken hostage. And the CIA comes up with this master plan to free the hostages and bring them back safely. When the American forces go in to liberate the captives, Mitch, Mitch probably knows a lot about this. I should have him talk about this particular side. But when Americans forced to go to liberate the captives, you shoot the bad guys, right? You shoot the bad guys. They don't, they don't, you don't hurt the captive. They want to get them out safely. You liberate captives. You don't kill them. In a war, you shoot the bad guy, not the hostage. I don't know a lot about war, but I know that. Satan takes people captive, and one of the traps that he sets is he wants us to come in and shoot them so that we kill our own. And when we don't receive people gently because it's, it's not a lifestyle we understand or it's not a choice that we would make, that is exactly what we're doing. We have an enemy, absolutely, and we are at war, totally, but it is not with the people who we don't agree with or the people who aren't Christians. Our enemy is Satan. And we've got to shoot the bad guy, not the hostage. And when we are gentle and we offer people space to figure it out with them and God, and we don't force our opinion and we don't decide who belongs and who doesn't, that is when we aren't shooting the hostage. Max Lucado said this, and I have it on your notes. I choose gentleness. Nothing is won by force. I choose to be gentle. If I raise my voice, may it only be in praise. If I clench my fist, may it only be in prayer. And if I make a demand, may it only be of myself. Those who reject his loved ones are in fact rejecting Jesus. Secondly, I think Bethany is a place of gentle reminders. A place of gentle reception and a place of gentle reminders. All these, these stories that you've heard in the scripture, you probably never realized that these particular ones all happened in Bethany. But in John eleven seventeen, 17, it says, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. So Martha says, Jesus, if you're here, this wouldn't have happened. I love her tact. She like scolds the king of the universe, you know. <laughs> what were you doing for four days? And in this crisis, in this suffering, in this death in Bethany, Jesus gives Martha a gentle reminder. Verse 25, Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? We're going to experience death and we're going to experience dry spells and suffering and hard days and moments where we want to run away and, and hide under the covers and never come out. And in those moments, Jesus offers us this gentle reminder. A reminder that, that this is how God builds a house. That this is how God builds a home through the death and the resurrection. 
Out of the dying, the Lord's life is expressed and we are built together into a home for Jesus. From the disease and the decay and the mulch and from the bad things, from the death, God births his resurrection life. Which then makes every crisis an opportunity. Makes every painful encounter uh, the fingerprints of God. It makes every failure an opportunity to practice our gentleness with one another. Um, a friend of mine, Dottie, came this morning. She goes to Kyle Fun. About a year ago or so, we were having lunch. And we were talking about um, this woman named Agnes. And from the time she was a young girl, she, she felt... Uh, she, she knew she believed. She felt the fire in her heart. She knew that God had been calling her. And she knew that Jesus was with her. And she had this undeniable sense of calling on her. And, and Agnes left her home, became a missionary, gave him everything. And then God left her. Well, that, that's at least how she felt. And she was left saying, where's my faith? I, I'm in this pit. I'm in emptiness. I'm in darkness. I just don't feel God at all. And Donnie and I both identified with that as we sat there and talked about it, how sometimes that happens. And, and on the outside, you're working and you're smiling and you're serving. But, but on the inside, there's a darkness and there's a pain over the absence of God. And, and Agnes just kept serving year after year. And such was the secret pain of her life. And Agnes is better known as Mother Teresa. She journaled about these feelings, and she actually asked someone to destroy her journals as she was dying, but they didn't listen to her. So still, still they've been found. But her willingness to persist in the face of these doubts has brought comfort and strength to people that an inner life of ease and certainty never could. In her life, she was a servant to the poor, but in her death, a missionary to those who don't feel God. And she leaves us with this gentle reminder. Mother Teresa said, feeling God, feeling God isn't the primary evidence that God exists. Jesus himself said, by your fruit, not your certainty, you will know he's present. Mother Teresa also gently reminds us that pain can be redemptive. I know it's probably not what you want to hear. But Jesus himself had to experience the agony of the absence of God. Remember on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he felt the absence of God. And as Jesus' suffering was redemptive to us, Mother Teresa could suffer redemptively by holding on to God in the midst of the darkness. And at the end of that lunch, basically we, we decided, is if you can't feel God, just don't let go. Just keep holding on, even if it's by a thread. Just, just don't let go, because that pain can be the very thing that gets you through. Some days you eat the bear, and some days the bear eats you. But could even our failure bring glory to God? Could even our doubt, our lack of perfection, our burnout bring glory to God? In Bethany, at home, there is death and there's failure and there's hardship. But in those battles, God gently reminds us, as he reminded Martha, that he's the resurrection and the life. And he makes us come alive. Lastly, Bethany is a place where gentleness is sown. Um, in Bethany, here's another story you probably recognize but didn't realize it happened in this place. They're having this dinner 
And uh, the feast is at the home of Simon the leper, who was um, actually a formally, he's cleansed at this moment. So some scholars believe that Jesus already healed him. And then also we got Lazarus there. He's the guy that was dead a few chapters ago. Um, And then they're eating, they're laughing. I'm sure they're laughing. You know, I thought I was dead. Um, They're telling stories. They're playing. I mean, it's this real, Jesus with his friends. Like, think about what it's like with your three friends. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as like this pious, you know, but he's hanging out with his friends. He's, he's with them. He's in fellowship with them. And Mary goes in the back room and comes out and she breaks open the seal of her perfume and she pours it out on Jesus' head as though he is king. And as this perfume trickles down his body and reaches his feet, she anoints him with a perfume. It's as if um, he's anointed, she's anointing like a royal corpse. It's this extremely honoring thing that she's doing. Perfume is worth about 300 denarii, and a denarius is a day's, a day's wage. So about a year's salary is, is how much this perfume is worth. I looked it up. The average income in America is $46,000. So that is a pretty expensive perfume that she, that she has. It was probably Mary's family's inheritance. In fact, it probably represented her savings, her future, her security, pretty much everything she had. But Mary knew that there was nothing too costly to lay at Jesus' feet. She valued him, and she knew how important he was to her. If you read a little bit further, Judas's response to Mary is, why the waste? Why the waste? Why would you pour that out on him? People are going to say that about you sowing into community. They're going to say that you're wasting your time. They're going to say that you're wasting your money. They're going to say that you're wasting your resources. Even good people, people that love you but just don't quite understand yet. But Jesus is worth all the investment. He is worth your life savings. He is worth every minute that you get to spend. There's this principle of sowing and reaping. And it's so simple. What you plant grows. But what you plant in your life grows in your life. Mary planted sacrifice and love and value, and that's what grew strong and tall in her life. So be nice to that jerk, yeah. That plants gentleness. Forgive that person that didn't even apologize. Yeah, that plants gentleness. Love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me. Yeah, because that's the fruit of the spirit. That's love, that's joy, that's peace, that's patience, that's kindness, that's gentleness. Plant those things and those things will grow up in your life. The hard part will be the waiting because probably you're not harvesting today what you're planting today, right? You're still sowing. So whatever you harvest tomorrow was sown a long time ago, and whatever you're going to harvest in the future is because of what you're sowing today. So let's say you've been sowing love and peace and friendship and gentleness, and you've been helping other people out, and you've been uh, making your schedule look like you love Jesus and carving out time for other people and, 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 and giving to one another. In 10 years, when something happens that's catastrophic, you know what's going to happen? People are going to come up around you and say, you love me and you help me. And you encouraged me and you supported me and you were like Christ to me in that moment. So I'm going to be like Christ to you. And there's your harvest. I believe that not only can we sow into our own lives so that things grow up in us, 
but we can sow into the lives of others. When I was younger, um, my brother Shane, who's here today, plant, planted a garden. I think he was like eight. And so we were like having watermelon for dinner and he spit out the seeds and then went outside and like put them in the yard. Okay, most of you know that doesn't really work. But um, he was so excited. So every day he would go out and like check. And of course there wouldn't be anything. And we're like, me and my other brother Jason are, you know. <laughs> and one day uh, he went out to check and we hear him yelling in the yard, ah, there's watermelons. And my other brother and I are going, oh my word. What, like, what is he talking about? And we go outside and lo and behold, there is three Huge, this big, huge watermelons. And since Shane's eight, he's like, they grew up overnight. <laughs> and me and my brother are like, something's fishy. And then we saw my mom's grocery bill receipt. And she had went to the store and bought these watermelons and put them in the yard. Sorry, Shane, I broke your, <laughs> you didn't know. Now you're 20. But <laughs> my mom, my mom said, surprise, you grew watermelons. <laughs> when really, really nothing that Shane had done Grew those watermelons. If someone is sowing death, get in their life and sow gentleness in the spirit. If someone is sowing something in their life that, that you see that, that isn't going to be good in the future, go into their life and sow something else. Because maybe, just maybe, a harvest will come in their life, but not even a harvest off of their own seed, but a harvest off of your seed. Maybe you love them and you encourage them and you are gentle with them. And in the middle of that, God uses that to reap a harvest in their life. Do you see why we need each other? Because community brings life change in ways we can't even see. And Bethany is a place where gentleness is sown. I'm going to have Kat and Jake come up. In the scripture... On Jesus' way, again, another story. Yeah, come on up, girls. From uh, Jesus is walking from Jerusalem to Bethany. And he sees a fig tree. Do you remember the story? He sees a fig tree. And it has no figs. It has leaves on it. I guess a fig tree is supposed to have leaves, leaves and figs. Go figure, okay? It's supposed to have both. But not this tree. This tree is deceptive. It's defective. It, by growing leaves, it's saying, yeah, I have fruit. But upon further observation, it really has no fruit at all. So what Jesus does is he curses it and it withers away. I, I always wondered, what, what does that even mean? Maybe you thought the same thing. This is a stark omen of what failing to produce fruit does to a community. You can't fake community. If we don't have kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, we aren't reflecting who Jesus is. We, we can say we are. We can put the sign out front. We can have the leaves. We can, we can create a program that says we're welcoming and loving and gentle. But if we don't have figs or fruit to prove it, then we aren't Bethany at all. In fact, we're, we're withered away. Good for nothing. Like Jesus treated the tree. So Jesus returns to Bethany and, and there he is fed and loved and cared for. And there he finds kindness and humility and gentleness and patience among the people. And there he was received gently. And there he, he, he reminded people gently. And there seeds of gentleness were sown. Now there are these moments in scripture that blow my mind. And I want to tell you one of them as I was studying this. 
is that the name Bethany actually means house of figs. The name of that city, that all of things, these stories happened in that we just talked about it, actually means a home of figs, of fruit, a fruit of gentleness, fruit of humility, fruit of patience, fruit of kindness. That's what the whole city even means. It means a community who is willing to waste their lives on Jesus together and dig their feet in the ground and say, this is the place for Christ right here. We welcome you, we value you, Jesus. We receive everybody that belongs to you and we receive them gently. And we want your gentle reminders in this time of darkness and and we wanna sow seeds of gentleness into our life and into other people's life so that it grows. I pray that Jesus could find his Bethany here among us and that Jesus could call this place home. Thing I do.
just sing that through twice. Can we sing it once together? So as a church, God, come and make your heart our home. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing that through one more time, and then the girls are going to finish painting, but if you need to go, have an awesome day today. Go in sowing gentleness, asking God for gentle reminders, and receiving people gently. God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for each person in this room, Father God, and that each of us is, is just a piece of a map to show the richness and the fullness of who you are. And God, I pray that we could learn from each other. As Mr. Riggle shared, he, he learned from people on his softball team and, and, and we learn from people as they teach us and we learn from people as we rub shoulders against one another. And I, I ask, Father God, that we wouldn't miss it, that we wouldn't miss the lessons of the depth and the wholeness and the richness of who you are and that, God, together, we can begin to have a fuller understanding of who you are. And God, I ask today that you would help us gently receive people, Father, even when our flesh gets in the way and we think we should do things a certain way. God, I ask that you would remind us, Father, that your message is with gentleness and respect and it convicts, God, and it changes. And I ask, Lord God, that as you remind us, if we don't feel, God, that we would just hold on to you, that you would make dead things in our life come alive. God, that's what you do best. And Father, we just hang on to that promise if we're, if we're in the wilderness right now. And lastly, Father, I pray that you would help us sow seeds of gentleness in our own life and in the lives of other people. 
And God, that whole watermelons would spring up into people's lives, even when we don't deserve them, God, because we are sowing into one another. God, we trust you and we love you and we don't want to play church anymore. God, we just want to be the people that you want us to be. We want to be Bethany. We want to be a home where you dwell so easily. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Come and make my heart your home. Come and be everything I am and all I know. Search me through and through till my heart becomes home for you. Come and make my heart your home.